Welcome to ESA Explorers, an official podcast of the European Space Agency. You're listening to our Beyond series. In this series, we take you behind the scenes of ESA astronaut Luca Parmitano's second mission to the International Space Station. I'm Ellie Kohler. And I'm Stephen Ennis. Let's go beyond. Luca is now back on Earth after a normal return from the International Space Station. Well, as normal as returning from space can ever really be. Luca's mission, however, was anything but average. In fact, he set a bunch of European records, including the most non-consecutive days in space, the longest cumulative spacewalking time, and the first Italian in command of the International Space Station. We've covered many of Luca's firsts and achievements. As Luca told us way back at the start of the series, the legacy of Beyond is less about the mission itself and more about ESA's exploration program. But regardless, it is great to have him back on Earth, especially after 201 long days in space. After a busy mission, Luca is recovering in Cologne, Germany, with the help of ESA's fitness and medical experts. Luca's beyond duties are not yet finished though. As Maybrit mentioned in episode 8, Luca is participating in many studies into the physiological effects of human spaceflight. These studies, and many others, seek to understand and address the challenges facing humankind as we reach beyond low Earth orbit. The Beyond mission, and all of ESA's human spaceflight efforts, are focused on the common goal of pushing the limits of exploration. On today's podcast, Ali is joined by Dr. Aidan Cowley, who works on pushing these limits with the help of the next generation of the space industry. That's right, Aidan is a science advisor at ESA. Aidan heads a unique initiative at our European Astronaut Centre called Spaceship EAC. This initiative brings together researchers, students, and bright minds from all over ESA to work together on cutting-edge research and development in the field of space exploration. Just a heads up, this interview with Aidan was recorded just before Luca returned from space, so we were still eagerly awaiting his return here on Earth. I have here with me today Aidan Cowley. Now, Aidan Cowley is a science advisor here at ESA. He's based at the European Astronaut Centre, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about how we go beyond, beyond what challenges we might be facing. So welcome, Aidan. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ali. Thanks for having me. Right. So before we get right into it, can you start by telling me a little bit about your role here at ESA and what it is that you do? Sure. So I'm uh, working here at EAC as a science advisor. And one of my main responsibilities is to manage the Spaceship EAC project here at EAC. Uh, This is essentially a multidisciplinary team of young early stage researchers, graduates, trainees, uh, interns who are working to advance technologies that we think will be important for future exploration beyond ISS. Okay, so they're our next generation of space explorers and the great minds behind it. Exactly, that's what we that's what we aspire for. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. So, how did Spaceship EAC come to be? Why is it so important to have this next generation excited and interested in working on future projects? Well, Spaceship EAC started in 2012, actually, as an initiative by the head of the center, the chief astronaut Frank Devin. For many years, that uh, they were iterating on what Spaceship EAC could be. I joined in 2014 and they said to me, can you take over this and maybe push it forward? So I was keen to do so. And one thing I saw is that there was a lot of opportunities for uh, young people to contribute to ESA in in ways that perhaps were not easily captured by other mechanisms of ESA. We felt that maybe using our students or using our early stage researchers and research fellows like myself at the time would be a good way to test or investigate new technologies or concepts without a massive impact in terms of costing to the agency. 
So we started working on small projects, low technology readiness level projects, TRL projects, mm-hmm. looking into concepts that we thought would be very important for exploration. For example, virtual reality and augmented reality. Could that be useful perhaps for exploration beyond ISS or looking into space resources? What could you potentially find on a planetary surface that could make exploration more sustainable? And these are topics that are really high on imagination, demand a lot of, of an innovation and, and a lot of energy. And they're the kind of projects that we could do with many of our team here at the early stages. Who are, And these people would always be young people who are energetic, enthusiastic and motivated to do something great in space. Yeah, sometimes you need that fresh pair of eyes when you've been at ESA exactly. for a while. You exactly. might overlook some of these things. <laughs> um, so you are doing really interesting things. I mean, I've seen you, your students microwaving what is moon right. dust and building all kinds of things. Can you, can you go into delve deeper into any of those projects? Sure. Right? So uh, you talked about microwaving and moon dust. This is a really interesting project for us because um, it's something you could do with a very low, low infrastructure basis. So we were able to basically uh, use microwaves, the conventional kitchen microwave. From your kitchen, yeah. <laughs> to melt or sinter regolith. And uh, this is a really interesting uh, topic that has been discussed before in the past. By using uh, this basic equipment, we were actually able to understand a bit more about what's going on and advance this project a bit further. It's a very powerful technology, potentially. It seems like a really simple thing, but it could be used for many, many different applications. For example, you could use it on the moon to make small bricks, which could be part of a radiation shield or a micrometeorite shield. You could use it to extract water from regolith, so perhaps use it to sustain astronauts for longer periods of time. Uh, there's many, many different uh, technologies that could be benefit from this uh, development. So it's a good example of how we can do a kind of a low cost approach to something, learn a lot of stuff and inject that into ESA or other research groups around Europe. And these sorts of things, these um, new and different ways of using resources or finding resources are going to be so important because we're not just doing these one shot lunar missions anymore. We're, we're going back sustainably. Right, is that right? Exactly. So you said the key word there is, is sustainability. And this is really a big thing. So if you want to really go to a planetary surface and stay there for longer periods of time, you need to start making your mission more sustainable. And this is where space resources is really, really important. Uh, you need to be able to find resources that are local to you, to gather them, utilize them, and basically use them to make your mission uh, less dependent upon resupply from Earth. So if you're just going to go back and repeat an Apollo-type mission to the moon, you can do that uh, with, with the infrastructure that we essentially have these days. But if you want to go there and stay for longer periods of time, you would then need something like, for example, to get oxygen out of the regolith uh, to supply oxygen for the astronauts, but also perhaps fuel for your return spacecraft. Mm-hmm. And it's very important that we develop these technologies now, because the further we go into the solar system, the more critical it becomes, this, this issue of self-sufficiency. It's okay when you're at the ISS, because you can get resupplied relatively frequently. Yeah. But as you go beyond to the moon or Mars and even further afield, this doesn't really become an option anymore. You have to find a way of sustaining yourself off local resources. Mm-hmm. And that's something that seems to be a big focus on the space station as well. With them, they're working to recycle or carbon yes. dioxide or yeah, these kinds of things. Yeah, they're trying to close those loops and yeah. make them as, as sustainable as possible. It's uh, it's also an economic cost. You know, mm. launching uh, uh, resupply missions is expensive. So if you can close those loops and not bring up so many kilos of water to the ISS, then this is a, a positive investment for taxpayers in the long run. Mm-hmm. And so you were kind of one of the first to be working on lunar technologies here at EAC. Right. How have you seen that develop? And obviously the moon is a huge focus now. How has yes, that yes. grown over your time? Uh, quite substantially. I always remember coming in here uh, as a research fellow. They hired me to look into lunar technologies for, for energy. 
and uh, I was very excited coming into ESA. It had been a long time ambition of mine to come work for the agency. And I was, I walked in the door and I was expecting to find everyone talking about lunar exploration, but actually I was probably the only, one of the only people in the building who was really interested in lunar exploration at the time. Thankfully, within about six months that had changed, we had our new director general, uh, Jan Werner, mm -hmm. and basically he talked about the moon village concept and suddenly everyone in ESA was very excited and energized by this vision of perhaps, you know, returning to the moon, but not just as a one-off, but as a sustainable village type uh, approach. So and, going uh, forward to the moon, really, going I think it is now, moon. isn't yes, it? Yes, that's yeah. what he says, exactly. <laughs> Uh, so it's it's really evolved since then, and uh, it's great to see this enthusiasm around moon exploration um, amplify. And I think um, it's it's really the only logical next place for us to go beyond ISS is to the lunar surface. And so you've mentioned a bit about uh, using resources and, and new ways to kind of not have to take so much up with us or to be more sustainable once we're there. Are there some other challenges that we'll encounter when we go to the moon um, that are being worked on by Spaceship or um, people that you're working with? Yes, for sure. There, there's many. Uh, uh, it's a very harsh environment, as mm -hmm. you can probably imagine. It's a, a very unique place, uh, very different from anything we have here on Earth. And there's a lot of challenges you have to face. One of the big ones is the radiation environment. Mm -hmm. So when you are here on Earth or even on the ISS, you have the magnetosphere of Earth protecting you against much of the harsh radiation environment of our, of our solar system. On the moon, you don't really have that protection. So you get exposed to the full brunt of solar wind and the galactic cosmic ray events that can happen. And this creates a very dangerous environment, potentially. So we're looking into, in, in the team in Spaceship BEC, we're looking into uh, how a regolith wall could be effective as a radiation protection. Okay. So we've been looking on how thick the regolith needs to be, what type of regolith it has to be, uh, what different compositions, different minerals might have on, on the effectiveness of the shield. And then we're also working with our colleagues in the space medicine team here at EAC to understand what the, the uh, physiological impacts of this radiation will be on the different organs in the body. So we can do this uh, with many simulation software. Mm -hmm. And we also couple this with all the experience that we have of producing regular bricks uh, using microwaves or lasers or uh, thermal sintering. These are, these are things that we've built up expertise on over the last couple of years and we can use to advance uh, this particular challenge. Mm-hmm. And this kind of experimentation and um, development of new technology and looking into ideas like you and your team are doing here, is that happening elsewhere as well? Are you working in with industry or other organizations? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's not uh, just us here. We're not the only people. And mm -hmm. even in ESA, we're not the only team. Um, for example, the, the advanced concepts team at uh, STEC uh, have been looking into many topics around space resources, for example. There's other groups as well, uh, commercially, companies who are interested in what they could potentially you know, do to kickstart a lunar economy, perhaps by re harvesting resources from, from the lunar soil to make it more sustainable. So there's uh, not just ourselves. And, and we also work with uh, researcher groups in Europe, uh, many, many universities, and many commercial entities who are just genuinely enthusiastic about lunar exploration and see Spaceship EAC and what we do here at EAC as a way of engaging with this and, and directing some of their enthusiasm for a, a great cause. So one question, I mean, I know we're, the, we're going to be having a gateway around the moon and ESA is part of Orion supplying the service module for Orion that will take mm -hmm. people further than before. Why don't we just send robots? Why is human exploration important? I think by sending humans to the lunar surface, you, you gain two things. One, you gain flexibility in terms of what you can explore and where you can explore. And you also get the human perspective. Um, flexibility allows you to see and do things that a robot perhaps 
cannot do unless it's designed specifically for that. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you see a nice, interesting geological sample over somewhere a little bit off off the beaten course, you can go there and take it. And these can be extremely valuable to to scientists back on Earth. And secondly, the human perspective is is really important. We're all explorers. We need to be able to see with our own eyes and experience with our own presence what it is to be a human in these kind of environments. And by sending people there, they can tell us uh, how, how it is to be on another planet. And I think that's a critical thing. Uh, people like to imagine themselves in another environment and listening to astronauts who've gone to the moon and telling, recounting their experience, it just gets you more inspired and more energized for exploration. Mm-hmm. And I think we've, we've seen that with Luca and as part of his time on the ISS, he was working with Analog One and controlling a rover. So it's that kind of human aspect. We had the scientists here at EAC, we had the rover in the Netherlands right. and, and Luca using the equipment to control it. It's exactly. that yeah. combination of the three um, that you can't, uh, can't quite get from just a robot. No, exactly. When might we see some of this technology? Do you think we'll see some of this technology come to fruition? What's the plan? Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of it is actually advancing at quite a quite a speed. I'm, I'm, I'm sometimes surprised myself to see it evolving so quickly. Uh, a great example is ESA is planning to potentially to fly a payload, an ISRU or, or Space Resources payload yeah. to the surface of the moon in the next decade. And uh, this will basically validate some of the concepts that we've been talking about to it in ESA for many, many years now. Uh, the biggest one is, could you actually get oxygen from regolith using a process? Mm-hmm. And uh, this would be, if, if it goes ahead and, and, and actually succeeds, it'll be the first time that we've actually produced a resource on another planet, which would be an amazing achievement for, for ESA and for all of, of, of Europe and, and anyone interested in human spaceflight. So when you say a payload, what exactly does that mean? What will be flying? So basically, they're thinking of flying a type of reactor to the surface of the moon on a commercial lander or another lander, perhaps from NASA. And this payload will take some regolith from the surface, uh, put it into the reactor, uh, carry out a chemical reaction with the regolith, and then release the oxygen as a product, which we can then capture and analyze and see if it is what we expect it to be based on our calculations and testing here on Earth. So if we do that, then we've proven the principle that, in fact, you can get resources from this regolith, and it really starts to open the door for giving people confidence in the concept of, you know, living off a land locally, you know. Mm-hmm. That's really exciting. Um, that was actually my question. next question was going to be, what excites you most about this, these next steps into space? For me, the most uh, exciting thing is, is probably around uh, these new technologies. I think people are always looking back to the past and thinking, well, why are we going back here to the moon? Uh, is this just a repeat of Apollo, perhaps? Mm-hmm. What's novel and interesting about the Artemis and all these other lunar activities? And the moon village and so forth but for me the the picture has changed radically from the time of, of our, our predecessors and who explored the moon uh, we have new technologies we have new concepts new ways of doing things and i think it's really important that we we go there to the moon and test these things and for me this is exciting to see now all this technology uh, being readied to be deployed and tested there to make potentially exploration of the moon more sustainable in the future that sounds really good. Well, I can't wait to see what what happens next with these projects, these exciting things that the students are working on and the researchers and, and where we go to next with our exploration beyond 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 low Earth orbit. Yes. So Yes indeed. Thank you very much, Aidan, for talking to us today. Thank you, Ali. Thanks very much. Aidan mentioned one particular exploration focused spaceship EAC project relating to utilizing the moon's surface material, or regolith, as a source of oxygen and building materials. 
It's worth mentioning that Spaceship EAC has a number of other exciting projects covering areas such as lunar habitat design, power systems for the moon, mission control software, and radiation simulations. Honestly, some of the best lunchtime discussions I've had have been with the folks from Spaceship EAC. I'm almost a little envious of how many interesting projects Aiden and the team managed to work on. When Spaceship EAC make a breakthrough and discover a technology of use for human spaceflight and exploration, other processes at ESA kick in. As Aidan mentioned, a lot of technologies and ideas addressed by Spaceship EAC have a low TRL or technology readiness level. Spaceship work mostly on ideas that are around TRL 1 or 2, which is a level of research and theory. When an idea advances up to TRL 4 or 5, this is when it may be considered for further development. If an idea has been shown to be of use in theory, and importantly, ESA sees a use for the idea in its exploration program, then it's time for the European space industry to step in. ESA has many ways of working with industry. Sometimes it's just testing out an idea on the ground, and sometimes industry, ESA, and our international partners will come together to put an idea on a rocket and send it into space for the ultimate test. With help from groups like Spaceship EAC, industry, and ESA engineers, an idea can go from theory to flight testing, which usually happens around TRL-7. But the end goal, the holy grail, is TRL-9. These are the technologies that form the foundation of flight and ground systems. ESA is pushing exploration beyond low Earth orbit. To do this, work by people like Aiden is essential to lift up low TRL ideas closer to flight readiness. These flight ready systems will help humankind explore the solar system. There are many exciting exploration projects on the horizon. Keep an ear out for future podcast content. And make sure you stay tuned as next episode, we have Luca back in the studio. He talks us through everything from that nail-biting spacewalk series to whether astronauts dream of space. Here's a quick preview of what to expect. And so we had put in place a lot of different uh, precautions so that we were absolutely sure that I was not going to cut the wrong tube, which on the ground had happened to every single crew that had trained oh, on really? EMS. Everybody, like every person that held the rough cutter and cut the tubes at one point or another, cut the wrong tube. Check us out on Twitter at ESA Spaceflight for the latest updates. And don't forget to use the hashtag ESA Explores. You can also find ESA on YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Until then, you can learn more about Luca and his Beyond mission at lucaparmitano.esa.int. And of course, hit that subscribe button to stay up to date. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for more ESA Explores.